Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, safely back from Atlanta, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, how was the trip? It turned out well. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. So on the downside, the uh, Google Maps says it takes six hours to get to Atlanta. It took 10 now, 30-ish minutes of that extra time was Kannapolis, North Carolina, where they've been doing construction since I was in college at State the first time, you know. Uh, but three hours of that time was spent going about six, seven miles around Pelham, South Carolina. I don't even know what happened. I-85 was just stuck. So if there's, a, if there's ever a zombie apocalypse, uh, our highways are going to be a national security threat. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was good. I mean, Atlanta people drive like crazy. I got down to, uh, by the time I got to Atlanta, it was so late that the traffic was not bad, but I had people zipping past me in, uh, you know, brand new cars going 30 miles over the speed limit. I had to switch my car into sport mode. You know, it's got the kind of the eco mode where it's a little sluggish, but saves you some gas and the normal mode and then sport mode. Um, I was in sport mode, you know, slamming on the gas, hitting the brakes, trying to get through, you know, it was crazy, but I enjoyed it. Uh, team and I did an escape room for the first time. I've never done one of those. So that was fun. Went to the Georgia Aquarium and, of course, had the competition as well. So it was a good trip. So, yeah, I'm back. And we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Um, well, we how do I want to put this. So we had a lot of stuff to talk about this week. We still do. But, you know, I've mentioned previously that I kind of keep track of how long the episodes are going to take based on how long the outlines are. And the original outline for this episode was 42 pages. Uh, it's not an exaggeration. There was actually a lot of stories that y'all have been sending me, most of them over the past few days. And when I emailed the outline to Mike, as I do every week, um, he was not pleased, as I, as I can imagine. I mean, this is still basically a hobby for both of us. So a outline that was more than double uh, what we're normally doing did not go over well, and I don't blame him. So we're having to make some adjustments. Uh, we're going to not have Law 140 this week. Again, we're going to miss Law 140 two weeks in a row. We will have one next week. I've already got it done. We actually have two Law 140s already queued up. Uh, one is going to be an overview on federalism and the Department of Justice lawsuits against the state of California. The other is going to be on a lawsuit against Dick's Sporting Goods for raising the age uh, under which they are selling firearms. But we're going to put off both of those because both of those tacked on about six or seven pages to uh, what the outline would have been. Uh, we're also going to skip most of the political talk. There is one story in politics that I'm going to mention, but we're going to skip over the rest of that. And a lot of the court stories, um, we're, we're, we've got a lot here, but we're going to have a lot more. So I've got a notepad file of all of the stuff that's been cut out of the outline that we'll have for either a bonus episode or next week or whenever we have a downtime. I don't know. But the gist of it is we've now gotten it down to how many pages are we at here? We're down to 19 pages. So that will be this episode. My guess is it will still take about an hour and a half. We'll find out. We'll see how good my estimating is. Uh, but if you have not done so already, make sure to uh, join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. -L. You can also leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to be one of our financial contributors, you can become a patron at Patreon. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. We have a few bonus episodes there for our patrons if you want to listen to them. And your financial support helps me pay Mike so he is willing to put up with these exorbitantly long outlines. Uh, oh, speaking of, so last week I mentioned we did a e-fundraiser of sorts at the end of the month. That will probably be a normal thing going forward, but since this is a middle-of-the-month podcast, I wanted to do something different this time. I want you to tweet us, either tweet me, Greg underscore Doucette, or tweet at Fiskmall, uh, and tell us why you listen. Why is it that you tune in every week? Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to retweet those out to the people that follow me on my personal account. Uh, so if you want to be Twitter famous, I can bring you a little bit of Twitter fame, but I'm doing it mostly to uh, get your thoughts and to help publicize the podcast for everyone else. So sometime this week, tweet us why you listen to Fiskamall, and I will give you a retweet. 
All right, so getting into the news, I mentioned we're skipping almost all of the politics because the country is still fucked. This is all a mess. But we're actually going to talk about a Democrat this time because Representative Joe Kennedy III is a garbage human being. Uh, He's been touted by the Democrats pretty heavily as a potential future presidential contender. Uh, He was given the response to the State of the Union and everything else. But there's a story out of the Boston Globe where I guess he had an interview with Ezra Klein from Vox, and the uh, Boston Globe kind of picked up pieces of that interview and went through it. And the guy is just, I'm going to give you some quotes, and then I'm going to save the the choice quote for the end. So from the story, uh, it says, quote, Even as he has seen his national profile continue to rise, the 37-year-old Democratic congressman is taking heat from the left over his opposition to marijuana legalization, including for medicinal purposes, which has become increasingly popular both within his party and across the country. After he was tagged to deliver his party's response to President Donald Trump's State of the Union address in January, pro-marijuana outlets scoured Kennedy's voting history in the House and found that he was among the few Democratic representatives who consistently voted against even mildly pro-marijuana bills even measures that many Republicans supported. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws gives Kennedy a D grade, which is tied for the lowest grade among the group's scorecard for Massachusetts' all-Democrat congressional delegation. In his interview with Klein, the congressman cited some of the unintended consequences of decriminalizing and legalizing the drug. This is, this is the choice quote part where I'm like, holy shit, Recalling his days working as a state prosecutor when Massachusetts voted in 2008 to decriminalize marijuana, Kennedy said the decision affected the ability of police officers to search and seize other illegal items from vehicles. Quote, if you smelled weed in a car, you could search a car, Kennedy said. When it became decriminalized, you couldn't do that. Holy shit. You have a Democrat Congress critter whose entire basis for supporting the continued jailing of minorities for possession of weed is that by decriminalizing it, the armed taxpayer-funded agents of the big government that happen to have badges can't search your car as easily as they could otherwise. I could only imagine what kind of choice words Kennedy has for the people who wrote the Fourth Amendment. The guy's a garbage human being. And I'm I'm torn because on the one hand, I would like for Democrats not to be terrible because God knows Donald Trump and the Trumpkin GOP is horrendous and needs to be replaced. But if he's the type of guy y'all nominate to run for president, fuck, you know, good luck. Uh, In court news, we have a couple appellate cases out of the Fourth Circuit, which happens to be the one that I am in. Uh, The court has held that handcuffing a compliant 10-year-old girl is excessive force. But you're still going to get qualified immunity if you do it. Uh, The case is E.W., that's the plaintiff's name, versus Rosemary Dolgos, who you'll find as a school resource officer, and the Wicomico County Sheriff's Department of Maryland. I don't know if that's even how you pronounce it, but I don't care because it sounds funny to me. Uh, So essentially, I'm not going to give you too much of the decision, but the gist of it is this. Two girls were fighting on the school bus. One girl stepped on another girl's shoes, so then that girl, who is E.W., retaliated by kicking the first girl. All of this got caught on the bus's surveillance camera. Three days later, the school brought in this SRO. Now, remember, school resource officers are bona fide police. Brought in this police officer, Rosemary Dolgos, to look at the security camera footage. And Dolgos summoned the girl to the principal's office, placed her in handcuffs, supposedly out of fear for her safety. Uh, and throughout the opinion, you have the, the court kind of expressing skepticism of that. Um, for example, they write in the opinion, quote, Dolgos placed E.W. in handcuffs from behind and reseated her. In her affidavit, Dolgo stated that she was concerned about the physical safety of herself and the school administrators because of the incident she observed in the surveillance video. Douglas expressed concern in the affidavit that E.W. might act violently against her or someone else if she attempted to walk E.W. from the school to her patrol car. But Dolgos also admitted that she had no idea whether E.W. had any past or current behavioral issues or past involvement with law enforcement. 
And E.W. stood at 4 feet 4 inches tall and weighed about 95 pounds, while Dogos stands 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighs 155 pounds. So the court continues, We are not considering the typical arrest of an adult, or even a teenager, or the arrest of an uncooperative person engaged in or believed to be engaged in criminal activity. Rather, we have a calm, compliant 10-year-old girl being handcuffed on school grounds because she hit another student during a fight several days prior. Uh, So they go on. Essentially, what they find is that this is excessive force, not appropriate for the police to do. But if that was all that was happened, we probably wouldn't have this on this program because, you know, there's got to be something stupid going involved there. And that's exactly what happens. The court throws out the case. They continue, quote, because we conclude that Dalgos's conduct was unreasonable and violated E.W.'s Fourth Amendment rights, we must next examine whether Dalgos violated a clearly established right. A right is clearly established if the contours of the right are sufficiently clear that a reasonable officer would understand that what he is doing violates that right. Here, Dalgos handcuffed a calm, compliant 10-year-old who was surrounded by multiple adults in a closed room for hitting another child three days earlier. While E.W.'s right not to be unreasonably handcuffed is clearly implicated by more general applications of the core constitutional principle invoked, namely the right to be free from the use of excessive and unreasonable police force, we cannot say that her seizure amounts to an obvious case such that Dolgos was put on sufficient notice that her conduct was unlawful. We call this consequence-free policing, where I'm from. Uh, Out of the 11th Circuit, turns out being a little defensive is not enough for a police officer to uh, search you, even in a high-crime neighborhood. This case is U.S. versus Patrick Hurd, where a conviction for possession of a firearm by a felon was vacated. And the case involves Marietta, Georgia, Police Department officer John Bisker. And from the story explaining the details of what has happened, there were apparently gunshots uh, in the woods in this particular apartment complex. And the court writes, quote, Bisker saw Heard, Patrick Heard, the guy who was charged, standing in the grass, walking a small dog. Heard was standing near the front of an apartment building by the woods that had been identified where the gunshots were. At this point, approximately 15 to 29 minutes had passed since Sanders had heard the gunshot. Sanders is the security guard for the apartment complex. Uh, Officer Bisker parked his car and approached Heard. Bisker asked Heard whether he had heard gunshots. Heard said that he had and indicated that the gunshots came from the woods behind him. Bisker asked Heard for identification. Heard provided him with ID. Heard's identification did not confirm that he lived within the apartment complex, so Bisker asked where Heard lived. Heard said that his mother lived there and pointed to the apartment building closest to where he was standing with his small dog. The court notes the small dog repeatedly. Like, the smallness of the dog apparently is important because every reference to the dog, it's clarified it's a small dog. And I I, I don't know why they do that, but it's hilarious as you're reading the opinion. Uh, The officer believed this response to be a little defensive, that's a quote, and an indirect answer to his question. Bisker then asked Heard for his mother's apartment number, and Heard did not provide a number. So the court goes on. Basically, this officer is is interrogating this random citizen with his little tiny dog, and the guy gets agitated because why the fuck would an officer continue asking you questions as you're walking your dog? And based on his nervousness, the officers decided to search him and found the firearm. Uh, well, the court decided that that wasn't good enough. Uh, As they were going through the opinion, the court says, quote, the district court failed to consider the fact that when the officers encountered Heard, he was walking his small dog in the grass in front of an apartment building inside a gated apartment complex. The court also failed to consider the fact that Heard behaved like a cooperative witness. He did not flee or try to avoid Officer Bisker, but instead willingly told him that he had heard gunshots and pointed in the direction where the shots originated. He provided Bisker with identification when asked. He explained what he was doing there, walking his small dog. And he told Bisker that his mother lived in the complex, pointed toward her building, the one closest to where he was standing. When these facts are added to the circumstances the district court did consider, the picture looks very different. 
The other facts the district court considered, although particular to Heard, his signs of nervousness and apparent refusal to cooperate, are insufficient to tip the balance to reasonable suspicion. Officer Bisker testified that Heard became a little defensive when asked where his mother lived, although the conversation remained amicable by all accounts. And the officers described Heard as swaying, rigid or tense, but we have been most reluctant to hold that the police can stop anyone based simply on exhibiting nervousness. Because we conclude that articulable, reasonable suspicion did not exist at the inception of the Terry stop, the stop violated the Fourth Amendment, and we need not analyze whether the scope of the stop or search was reasonable. The gun seized from Heard must therefore be suppressed, and because possessing a gun was a necessary element of Heard's crime of conviction, we must vacate his conviction. So kudos on the 11th Circuit. Let's hope that becomes a thing that other circuits decide to follow along. Uh, in general research news, there was a new study out by the Economic Policy Institute uh, basically checking in on the progress of the black community over the past 50 years since the summer of 1967 and race riots that happened in multiple cities across the country. Uh, basically finds that things are still pretty much fucked in the black community. There's slight improvement in certain areas like education, uh, but things like incarceration and everything else have actually gotten worse in some instances. Uh, and along these same lines, there is an editorial in the New York Times written by Fred Harris and Alan Curtis. Now, Fred Harris is the only still alive member from the Kerner Commission, which was a federal blue ribbon commission that was created after the summer of 68. And uh, Curtis was the member of the private sector kind of continuation after the government commission wrapped up its stuff. And even though it's an editorial, I'm going to give you a link to it in the show notes. I want you to check it out anyway, because there's a lot of data pulled from the EPI study that they use in this editorial. Uh, and what Harris and Curtis write includes, quote, our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Fifty years ago, on March 1st, 1968, these were the grim words of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, called the Kerner Commission after its chairman, Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. President Lyndon Johnson had established the commission to examine the disorders and violent protests in Detroit, Newark, and well over 100 other American cities during the summer of 1967 and earlier. What it found was searing. What white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto, the commission concluded. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. The Kerner Commission recommended massive and sustained investments in jobs and education to reduce poverty, inequality, and racial injustice. Have we made progress in the last 50 years? In many ways, things have gotten no better or have gotten worse since 1968. And they go through some of these examples and find, for example, that schools in the Northeast are actually now more segregated today than they were back during the pre-civil rights era. So back when you had de jure segregation, segregation by law, separate but equal was still the law of the land, you actually had schools in New England more integrated than they are today. Uh, they also found that schools in other parts of the country were integrated briefly, but now are resegregating back to where they were to begin with. Uh, they found that the black unemployment rate is actually worse than it was back then. The home ownership rate is unchanged, and the incarceration rate is astonishingly worse. Like the volume of black people we throw into prison to rot is astounding. So they've got a lot of graphs on all of this. Definitely give it a read. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, the Intercept has a long read on the use of courts as debt collection mills to run debtors' prisons. Uh, they start off, quote, On Christmas Eve in 2013, an out-of-work welder named Rex Iverson was rushed to a Utah hospital. Rex survived but was hit with a hefty bill for the ambulance ride. There is a widespread assumption that indigent patients never have to pay emergency room bills they can't afford, and instead the cost is passed on to those with insurance. But, in fact, companies and municipalities pursue such debts aggressively. In Iverson's case, the city operating the ambulance service won a $2,300 judgment against him in small claims court, but since he had no wages to garnish, a judge issued a warrant for Iverson to talk about the unpaid debt, 
Uh, Iverson didn't return to court, so he was later arrested. In January 2016, a deputy sheriff knocked on Iverson's door and arrested him. The judge had set bail at $350, which Iverson told jail officials he could not pay. Later that same day, Iverson, 45, was found dead in a holding cell. An investigation determined that he had killed himself by ingesting strychnine. So they go on from there. The long story short is you have um, really small stuff that balloons into really big stuff, and companies use the courts to basically throw you in jail, even though that type of thing is supposed to be illegal. And we have things like bankruptcy that exist for a reason. Uh, so that's out of The Intercept. In Science Magazine, there's a story on the use of algorithms to help police in classifying gang crimes and the risk that AI poses. And the interesting part is the, like, I don't want to call it a nerd fight, but it really is a fight between um, computer folks that realize the implications of what they're creating and folks that are just like, oh, I'm just following orders type. So from the story, it says, quote, when someone roughs up a pedestrian, robs a store, or kills in cold blood, police want to know whether the perpetrator was a gang member. Do they need to send in a special enforcement team? Should they expect a crime in retaliation? Now, a new algorithm is trying to automate the process of identifying gang crimes. But some scientists warn that far from reducing gang violence, the program could do the opposite by eroding trust in communities, or it could brand innocent people as gang members. This is almost certainly a well-intended piece of work, says Google software engineer Blake Lemoyne, who is based in, or Lemoyne, sorry, uh, who is based in Mountain View, and has studied ways of reducing bias in artificial intelligence. But have the researchers considered the possible unintended side effects? So they go on, and you, you go through a bit of the background on the AI, but you get later into the story, and you find out the answer to that question is no. Uh, so there was a talk at AIES, and there was a Q. I, I don't know what the acronym is. I don't have it in my notes. But there was a Q&A session afterwards, and Lemoyne is asking questions of these developers. And how Chan, a computer scientist now at Harvard University, who was presenting the work, responded that he couldn't be sure how the new tool would be used. I'm just an engineer, he said. Lemoyne quoted a lyric from a song about the wartime rocket scientist Werner von Braun in a heavy fake German accent. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? He then angrily walked out. Approached later for comment, Lemoyne said he had talked to Chan to smooth things over. I don't necessarily think that we shouldn't build tools for the police or that we should. I think that when you're building powerful things, you have some responsibility to at least consider how this could be used. Amen, brother. So the thing about this type of technology, data mining, and everything else is that it's like any other computer program. You put garbage in, you get garbage out. If you have police that are already patrolling predominantly black neighborhoods, not because they're actually more high crime, but just because that's where they're accustomed to going, that's where they then make arrests so they get a perception that it's a high crime area, even though actual crimes are not necessarily committed because an arrest is not proof of having committed a crime. Well, then you have these new algorithms out relying on old data to help you make identifications, and you're basically ingesting biased past data, and inevitably you're going to get biased future results from that. Uh, so it's an interesting story. I'll give you the full thing so you can read it in the show notes. Out of Vice News, they have an interview with Antoinette Harrell, who is a researcher doing a series of data compilations on what's called peonage slavery. Uh, so it's basically very similar to indentured servitude. Basically, you have someone claiming that you owe them a debt, and because of that, you have to be their slave. Uh, this has actually been illegal in the country for years. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery, and peonage slavery is what the courts describe as uh, what we call the badges and incidents of slavery. Uh, so under the 13th Amendment, you can actually sue someone individually. That's not something you can do with most other uh, types of rights. So when you're suing a police officer under the 14th Amendment, for example, you have to use a federal statute. Well, under the 13th Amendment, you can sue a private person individually alleging a violation of the 13th Amendment if they have done something that violates one of these badges and incidents of slavery. Well, uh, Harold has been investigating and doing research on this stuff, and what she's found over the past 20 years of pulling this all together is that there were black slaves as recently as 1963 
as in during your parents' lifetime, if you happen to be one of someone my age. So it's a yeah, it's an interesting interview and story. I'll give you the link and definitely check out her stuff. In federal news, our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald J. Trump, uh, has nominated William Otis to be on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And uh, Otis, this guy's dumber than a box of rocks. He doesn't understand what facts are. He is a diehard supporter of mandatory minimum sentences. From the story, it says, quote, President Donald Trump has nominated former prosecutor and current Georgetown Law adjunct professor William Otis to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, a body that Otis once said should be abolished. Otis is a notorious opponent of attempts to roll back mandatory minimum sentences and mass incarceration. He's a familiar face to anyone who's followed debate on the issue, mostly because he's often the only person news outlets and conference organizers can still find who's willing to speak out bluntly in support of mandatory minimums. Two facts about crime and sentencing dwarf everything else we've learned for the last 50 years, Otis once said. When we have more prison, we have less crime. And when we have less prison, we have more crime. The ironic part is that's totally fucking false, as we have pointed out repeatedly on this program and on Twitter and elsewhere. It's not true. Uh, the president also wants authority to let Secret Service roam polling places during Election Day. We'll give you a link to that story. It's one of those things that's too stupid to really go into too much detail on. Uh, in state-by-state -state news, out of Arizona, in Phoenix, a Superior Court judge is being investigated for sexually abusing a girl from when she was 13 until she was an adult. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the alleged victim, now 25, told investigators last year that Pinal County Superior Court Judge Stephen Fuller touched her genitals and buttocks repeatedly and also showed her pornography. The woman said she and the judge knew each other before the alleged abuse occurred. The alleged abuse was reported in late September to police in the Phoenix suburb of Mesa by an attorney for the Mormon Church who said the alleged victim revealed the alleged abuse to her bishop. They used alleged a lot in that one sentence, at least three times by my count. Uh, she spoke with investigators several weeks later, saying she was coming forward after being encouraged to do so by Paul Babu, a family friend who was the Pinal County Sheriff from 2009 through 2016. The woman told investigators that she first told her mother when she was around age 13 that Fuller had touched her inappropriately, but that her mother told her making those kinds of claims could ruin others' lives. The woman in the interview and through emails with the investigator said the abuse continued on an almost weekly basis for years. With Fuller touching her genitals and rubbing against her, she told police he separately showed her pornography. They mentioned that twice. Uh, the attorney for the Mormon church went to police in Mesa, thinking that was where some of the alleged abuse occurred. Now, this is, this is kick the can down the road type stuff. Uh, Mesa police initially investigated, but then turned it over to Pinal County authorities after they discovered the alleged abuse happened in Pinal County. And then Pinal County officials wanted to avoid a conflict of interest, so they handed the case off to the Pima County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the Mesa police report obtained by the AP does not state in what years the alleged abuse happened, but said it stopped when the young lady became an adult. Uh, also in Arizona, out of Tucson, Customs and Border Patrol Officer Marco De La Garza Jr. has been federally indicted. Uh, on what crime, you ask? This is true. Uh, he falsely told Customs and Border Protection that he was born in Texas, when in reality he was born in Mexico. And they hired him anyway. And their background check was super detailed, I can tell you. Uh, out of Arkansas and Little Rock, I don't know if this is really an Arkansas case. It doesn't seem like it. This guy's actually been doing stuff all over the place. He just happened to have gotten arrested in Arkansas, so we're going to give them the story this week. A uh, prison transport officer has been arrested for sexually assaulting more than 100 women. From the story, it says Eric Scott Kinley was from California. Uh, picked up an inmate from Alabama to transport to Arizona, but made a stop in Arkansas to try to rape her and force her to give him a blowjob, and he got caught. So this guy is now being uh, federally prosecuted for that. In California, we've got three stories there. Uh, out of the state Supreme Court, they have banned 50-year sentences for juveniles. That's for state-level offenses. They don't have any impact on federal stuff. Uh, but the California Supreme Court decided that juveniles may not be sentenced to 50 years or longer because it was, quote, functionally equivalent to life without parole. The court writes, quote, a young person who knows he or she has no chance to leave prison for 50 years has little incentive to become a responsible individual, wrote Justice Goodwin Liu, citing a 2010 United States Supreme Court decision that severely restricted life sentences for juveniles. So good news out of California on that. 
In Los Angeles, prosecutors have uh, refused to indict killer cop Clifford Proctor, even though the police chief himself said the guy needed to be prosecuted because he's a liar. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Brandon Glenn, a black 29-year-old who had been camping with homeless people in the beachside area, that's Venice Beach, by the way, was fatally shot in May 2015 when Proctor, who is also black and a partner, tried to detain him after he fought with a bar bouncer. Glenn had resisted being handcuffed and was taken to the ground by the officers. A struggle ensued, and Proctor fired two shots. Proctor told police investigators that he had fired because he thought Glenn was trying to grab his partner's gun. But the report found video taken nearby disputed the account. I know you were shocked on that one. Uh, The city's police chief, Charlie Beck, recommended criminal charges against the officer after the LAPD completed its investigation of the case. Beck told the Los Angeles Times that his investigators had concluded that Glenn was actually lying on his stomach and trying to get up when Proctor fired at him, striking him in the back. District Attorney Jackie Lacey announced the decision not to charge Proctor, saying that her office did not believe it could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Proctor had violated the law. Prosecutors cannot ethically charge a person with a crime if they do not believe a jury would convict the person of that crime, Lacey said in a statement. This basic tenet of criminal law requires us to consider the suspect's possible defenses against those charges, as we did in this case. One, that's entirely bogus. Like, prosecutors charge people all the time without giving the slightest damn about their defenses because an affirmative defense has to be proven by the defendant. It's not proven by the prosecution. But then, two, this is gutless as hell. This is entire. You have video of police shooting a guy in the back. You have proof that he has lied. His own police chief is saying you need to charge the guy, and you're not even going to try. It's gutless, absolutely gutless. District attorneying, she's terrible. Uh, out of Oakland, the Austin Huerta coffee shop is refusing to serve police officers, and the police are offended by it. Uh, from the story, it says, "Quote last month." When Oakland Sergeant Robert Trevino walked into the coffee collective Hasta Muerte, a barista told him the establishment doesn't serve police officers. Trevino is the Alameda County chapter president of the National Latino Peace Officers Association, and he works in the predominantly Latino Fruitvale neighborhood where the shop is located. Uh, If any of you have seen Fruitvale Station, is the movie on the extrajudicial summary execution of Oscar Grant, an unarmed black man killed trying to take the subway. Uh, That's where this is. Uh, The story continues, quote, Trevino mentioned his espresso rejection to Sergeant Barry Donilon, president of the police association, who then sent a letter to Austin Huerta asking it to clarify its policy on whether it serves officers. Obviously, this is both a surprise and a matter of concern for all Oakland peace officers, Donilon wrote. Oakland police officers work tirelessly every day to serve the residents of our city. I have never heard of police officers being refused service by an Oakland business. The Oakland Fire Union has asked its members to refrain from going to the shop out of solidarity with police officers. Now, here's the thing. Y'all remember the cake shop case and I think it was, is it Oregon? The one that's in front of the Supreme Court where a gay couple wanted a wedding cake and the guy that made them refused because he said that he doesn't do wedding cakes for gay couples and they sued. And you know how Republicans and conservatives were all like, well, why would you try to go to a shop that doesn't want to serve you anyway? Why wouldn't you go somewhere else? Why are the police so concerned that this particular coffee shop doesn't want to serve them coffee? Why don't you go somewhere else? That's out of California. In Florida, in Miramar, from the Yes, This Actually Happened files, uh, two SWAT officers who responded to the Parkland school massacre a couple weeks ago have been suspended because they didn't have permission to help. From the story, it says, quote, When a gunman started shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, two Miramar SWAT team members did what comes naturally. They went to help. Now they've been suspended for it. The officers did not have permission to respond to the shooting at Parkland on February 14th when 17 people were killed. That created an officer safety issue and left them unaccountable for their actions, according to the police department. That's that. Wow. That's dumb. Uh, In Georgia, in Washington County, Georgia taxpayers are going to be shelling out some money on this one. Sheriff's Deputy Corey King had his ex-wife thrown in jail because she criticized him on Facebook. Uh, She's now gotten out and is suing, and she's going to end up winning. 
from the story. It says, quote, petty Facebook drama can be uncomfortable and a little tacky, but generally speaking, no one's really worried about going to jail over it. That is, until Ann King and a friend found themselves both behind bars for a few hours after badmouthing King's ex-husband, a sheriff's deputy in Washington County, Georgia, on Facebook. Now King is suing her ex and his colleague for violating her constitutional rights. That moment when everyone in your house has the flu and you ask your kid's dad to get them, not me, more Motrin and Tylenol, and he refuses, she wrote, adding an overwhelmed face to the post. The ex-husband then filed an incident report and, according to his own admission, requested an arrest warrant because of her, quote, derogatory statements. The arrest warrant said the subject, quote, did without a privilege to do so and with intent to defame another, communicate false matter which tends to expose one who is alive to hatred, contempt, or ridicule, and which tends to provoke a breach of peace. The next day, a Washington County Court magistrate issued warrants for both Ann King and Hines. The women were charged with criminal defamation of character. I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. Uh, processed and spent about four hours in jail before boasting uh, p- before posting a thousand dollars bail. So here's the thing: criminal defamation of character does not exist. It violates the First Amendment. It used to exist. But it does not exist today. In Georgia's case, there is actually a Georgia Supreme Court decision that expressly ruled that it was unconstitutional back in 1982. Uh, so that was what I was one at the time. So 36 years ago. Uh, God, this is this is ridiculous. Police run amok, I tell you. Uh, taxpayers in Georgia, I apologize. You're going to lose that case. And you're going to be paying out money to this woman because her ex-husband is a cowboy with a badge. Uh, out of Illinois, in Chicago, Mother Jones has an expose on the city making $200 million every single year just from parking tickets. And they're, uh, they're bankrupting thousands of drivers in the process. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, For Chicago's working poor, and particularly for African Americans, a single unpaid parking ticket or automated traffic camera ticket can quickly spiral out of control and threaten their livelihoods. Bankruptcy offers a temporary reprieve, giving these motorists the chance to resume driving without fear of getting pulled over or losing their vehicles to the city pound. The problem has gotten worse over the past decade, ProPublica Illinois found, in an analysis of bankruptcies filed in the Northern District of Illinois, which includes Chicago and its suburbs. In 2007, an estimated 1,000 Chapter 13 bankruptcies included debts to the city, usually for unpaid tickets, with the median amount claimed being around $1,500 per case. By last year, the number of cases surpassed 10,000, with the typical debt to the city around 3,900. Though the number of tickets issued did not rise during that time, the city increased the cost of fines, expanded its traffic camera program, and sought more license suspensions. The result, more debt due to tickets. Legal experts say what's happening in Chicago's bankruptcy courts is unique. Parking, traffic, and vehicle compliance tickets prompt so many bankruptcies, the court here leads the nation in Chapter 13 filings now. It's a problem fueled by the city's increasingly aggressive ticketing to boost revenue. Tickets brought in nearly $264 million in 2016, or about 7% of the city's $3.6 billion operating budget. The story actually goes on to note that there are law firms making money pitching bankruptcy filings as a way to try and get drivers to uh, hire them. So it's it's one job creation initiative. I'm not sure the city had in mind. But that's uh, Chicago for you. Uh, Out of Louisiana in New Orleans, there's a new predictive policing tech that's being deployed in the city. And the city council didn't even know about it. Uh, It involves a company called Palantir Technologies, which is a data mining firm founded with seed money from, quote, the CIA's venture capital firm. Did you know the CIA had a venture capital firm? I did not. Uh, But apparently they do. The story continues, quote, according to interviews and documents obtained by The Verge, the initiative was essentially a predictive policing program similar to the heat list in Chicago that purports to predict which people are likely drivers or victims of violence. 
The partnership has been extended three times, with the third extension scheduled to expire in 2018. The City of New Orleans and the Palantir folks have not responded to questions about the program's current status. Predictive policing technology has proven highly controversial wherever it is implemented. But in New Orleans, the program escaped public notice, partly because Palantir established it as a philanthropic relationship with the city through Mayor Mitch Landrieu's signature NOLA for Life program. Thanks to its philanthropic status, as well as New Orleans' strong mayor model of government, the agreement never passed through any public procurement process. In fact, key city council members and attorneys contacted by The Verge had no idea that the city had any sort of relationship with Palantir, nor were they aware that Palantir used its program in New Orleans to market its services to another law enforcement agency for a multi-million dollar contract. Fun times in Louisiana, which remains, as I've mentioned before, a floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck when it comes to anything relating to criminal justice. Uh, Out of Maryland. So I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I couldn't actually get you the link. We have the link now. Uh, The district attorney, well, they call them state's attorneys up there, Marilyn Mosby, now says that thousands of court cases have been compromised as a result of the corrupt gun trace task force. Uh, Quote, at first it was hundreds of cases, Mosby said, speaking on a panel at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Thanks to the testimony that came out, our preliminary estimate now is that it's thousands of cases that may be impacted by the wrongful and illegal acts of these police officers. Eight city officers have been convicted of racketeering charges for using their badges to rob people, including two detectives who were convicted by a federal jury. The initial allegations in the federal indictment dated from 2015, but officers cooperating with the government have testified to crimes as far back as 2008. The Gun Trace Task Force is part of why we created the fourth rule of FISC. The Wire is a documentary. Uh, Also in Baltimore, a corrections officer has been convicted for beating the everlasting shit out of an inmate for sport. From the story, it says, quote, a Maryland corrections officer has been convicted of second degree assault and misconduct in office for punching and choking an inmate at Baltimore's Central Booking and Intake Center. Sergeant Chance Hellum is scheduled for sentencing on March 27th. The attack happened September 21st of 2016. Prosecutors say an inmate walked past Hellum, who called back the person and then punched them in the face. Helm choked the inmate while another officer came to help. The inmate was held from behind while Helm punched the inmate twice more in the face. A few days later, prison officials received an anonymous tip about the attack. They found surveillance video of the assault, and Baltimore assistant state's attorneys prosecuted the case. Uh, In Massachusetts, in Chicopee, police officer Corey Fournier has been arrested for rape. From that story, it says, quote, a Chicopee police officer was arraigned Tuesday on charges that he raped a woman over the weekend during National Guard training at Fort Devens, or Devens, I don't even know how it's pronounced. Uh, Officer Corey Fournier, a three-and-a-half-year veteran of the Chicopee Police Department, appeared in Clinton District Court for arraignment on two counts of rape and single counts of kidnapping and assault and battery. In Michigan, we have another judge behaving badly. Uh, This one happens to be a frequent, uh, what's the word here? Uh, He likes to procure prostitutes in his spare time. From the story, it says, quote, a Monroe County District Court judge has been charged for allegedly hiring and transporting women for sex. Officials say Monroe County First District Judge Jared Calkins has been charged with four counts of hiring women for the purpose of prostitution and one count of transporting a person for the purpose of prostitution. Michigan State Police investigated after receiving reports of prostitution at a Monroe Township hotel. That's when MSP First District Special Investigation Section discovered someone matching Calkins' description was arranging for women to meet him to trade sex for money. According to the felony complaint that was filed, Judge Calkins set up accounts on Tinder, OkCupid, and Facebook under the name Michael Calkins before meeting with at least four victims. The complaint says he discussed a, quote, sugar daddy relationship with them and also said he wanted to, quote, engage in BDSM with them. So here's the thing. I'm not a prude when it comes to sex work. You know, if it's something that you want to do, fine. No big deal. But you probably shouldn't be doing that when you're a judge and your job is to, you know, judge people for violating the law when you yourself are violating the law. So it's uh, fun times in Michigan. Out of New Jersey in Atlantic City. Uh, God, this is just, I don't even know what you would call this. Like, this is just stupid, disturbing 
bullshit. Um, so it, new reports have come out via public records request about a prior, a bunch of bad stuff, basically. And in one particular case, a detective who goes by the name of Glenn Abrams deliberately stole a puppy from a home where they had done a drug raid and then tried to have it killed. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a city police officer once accused of concealing, it's concealing is in quotes, by the way, a stolen six-week-old puppy taken during a drug raid on a home ultimately tried to rid himself of the sub-quote stolen property by sending the puppy to a kill shelter. Detective Glenn Abrams Jr., now a 12-year veteran of the Atlantic City Police Department, took the pit bull puppy named Crystal, tried to hide it from investigators by giving the dog to his mother, and finally took the puppy to an animal shelter that puts down unadoptable pets. There is a happy ending for Crystal, though. The puppy was not euthanized, and she was reunited with her family three months later. But the case does highlight how rogue cops can skirt the rules and remain on the force, even after repeated investigations into bad behavior. When confidential internal affairs records do become available through court records, they provide a rare insight into how police officers conduct themselves within a system that often turns a blind eye to abuses. And beyond that, you just you got to be a really fucked up human being to try and kill a puppy. Perfectly healthy puppy that you just don't want to be burdened with, so you're like, fuck it, let me go take it to a shelter that will kill it for me. Like, oh God. Uh, out of New Mexico, in Albuquerque, this is another one of those crazy-ass stories. So back in 2017, a police officer T-boned a car because he was speeding down the street of a busy intersection and in the process killed a six-year-old boy. Well, now that officer is suing the mom who was driving the car, who was also severely injured, lost her son. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a New Mexico police officer with a history of being reprimanded for on-duty crashes filed a lawsuit against a woman whose six-year-old son was killed when the officer slammed into their vehicle while speeding to a crime in progress. Jonathan McDonald of the Albuquerque Police Department filed the civil suit against Antoinette Sweena, charging she failed to yield to an emergency vehicle when she turned in front of his speeding patrol car in 2017. Now, here's the thing. There's actually security camera video of this accident, and the way the topography of the area is set up, there's no way in hell this woman could have seen him as fast as he was going. Uh, from the story continues, quote, following the wreck, the Albuquerque Police Department released to the Albuquerque Journal newspaper a list of five on-duty crashes and one unauthorized pursuit McDonald had been involved in since 2009, in which he was reprimanded. So basically, this guy's been doing this once a year. You got six different incidents over a six-year period. Uh, he was suspended in three of the incidents. Surveillance video of the crash obtained by ABC station KOAT-TV in Albuquerque shows McDonald's patrol car heading north on a busy six-lane road and plowing into the passenger side of Sweena's SUV turning in front of him, sending the vehicle spinning out of control and into a light pole. Sweena's son, Joel, was rushed to a hospital where he died the next day. Sweena and Ariana, her daughter, were hospitalized with severe injuries. In his suit against Sweena, McDonald, himself a married father of three young children, is asking for undisclosed damages, saying he still requires medical treatment for injuries he suffered in the collision. McDonald claims he, quote, suffered and will continue to suffer a loss of household services, loss of wages, loss of recreational activities, and a loss of enjoyment of life. Uh, as part of this reconstruction, when they investigated, they found the guy was going about 80 miles an hour in a, uh, that area was, was a 35 mile an hour zone. So more than double the speed limit and just completely demolished this woman's SUV, taking out her son in the process. Uh, out of New York, the big story of the week is from BuzzFeed, who got its hands on secret internal files from the New York Police Department from 2011 to 2015 regarding discipline, and basically found that at least 319 officers did something wrong, and none of them got punished for it. From the BuzzFeed story, it says, quote, internal NYPD files show that hundreds of officers committed the most serious offenses, lying to grand juries, physically attacking innocent people. They all got to keep their jobs, their pensions, and their tremendous power over New Yorkers' lives. Many of the officers lied, cheated, stole, or assaulted New York City residents. At least 50 employees lied on official reports under oath or during an internal affairs investigation. 38 were found guilty by a police tribunal of excessive force, getting into a fight, or firing their gun unnecessarily. 
57, we're guilty of driving under the influence. 71, we're guilty of ticket fixing. One officer, Jarrett Dill, threatened to kill someone. Another, Robertson Tunis, sexually harassed and inappropriately touched a fellow officer. Some were guilty of lesser offenses, like mouthing off to a supervisor. At least two dozen of these employees worked in schools. Andrew Bailey was found guilty of touching a female student on the thigh and kissing her on the cheek while she was sitting in his car. In a school parking lot, while he was supposed to be on duty, Lester Robinson kissed a woman, removed his shirt, and began to remove his pants. And Juan Garcia, while off-duty, illegally sold prescription medication to an undercover officer. In every single instance... The police commissioner, who has final authority in disciplinary decisions, assign these officers to dismissal probation, a penalty with few practical consequences. The officer continues to do their job at their usual salary. They may get less overtime and won't be promoted during that period, which usually lasts a year, but when the year is over, so is the probation. So this was the inspiration for this week's podcast title about consequence-free policing. But if you notice through the other stories, it's actually a recurring theme all over the fucking country. Uh, but kudos to BuzzFeed for the expose. I'll give you the link. You should check it out. It's pretty harrowing stuff. Uh, in Greece, New York, the grand jury has refused to indict a man for releasing a song titled School Shooter. Uh, this is one of those dumb as hell things that I can't believe the police are actually trying to prosecute, particularly when there are so many court cases on point about it. Uh, but from the story, it says, quote, late last month, Ross, I don't have his first name in my notes, uh, was charged with making a terroristic threat after posting the school shooter video on YouTube. The video was shot outside locations in the Greece school district, including Greece Arcadia High School. While no clear threat is made against any school, Ross is seen approaching school buildings and pulling on the doors. The lyrics of the song also read, I lay him down like a school shooter. This is, this is so obviously protected by the First Amendment. I can't believe I'm including it, but yes. So basically, the police arrested him. And of course, because it's a felony, you have to have a grand jury indict if you're going to proceed. The DA decided that he's not going to just dismiss the case outright. He did present it to a grand jury. And somehow, the grand jury actually had more respect for the Constitution than both the police and the district attorney. Uh, in North Carolina, in Asheville... We talked about that case last week where there was leaked body cam video of Asheville Police Department officer Chris Hickman beating the everlasting shit out of an unarmed black man, allegedly for jaywalking. Uh, well, the story got picked up by the New York Times and other national media, so it became a tremendous uproar. And as a result of that uproar, Hickman has now been charged with assault. I'm going to give you a link to that story, uh, but I'm also going to give you a link from an independent publication called The Asheville Blade. And the guy that produces that has a link. Uh, well, he's got several links. He's got a compilation of coverage of the story from different outlets. But in particular, he also includes a history about Asheville and their hostility towards people of color. So even though it's a very liberal city, they still don't like black folks. Uh, out of Ohio and Columbus, Columbus Police Department officer Zachary Rosen is back on the force after doing his best possible Edward Norton impression. We've talked about this guy before. Uh, this was back in episode 11, way back last summer, where he basically curb stomped a guy. You have an unarmed black man handcuffed on the ground, and this dude's just like kicking him in the head. Got a one-day paid suspension for his trouble. Well, after that, after the video came out, he was actually fired, and that was unacceptable to the police union who pursued it on his behalf his reinstatement, and an arbitrator agreed. So from the story, uh, it says, quote, an arbitrator ruled Officer Zachary Rosen will be reinstated. Columbus police officials said Rosen will be back in zone four, the exact same zone where this incident happened. Uh, on the 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. shift, he said Zone 4 includes the precinct where the incident occurred. Mayor Andrew Ginther said he was, quote, disappointed by the arbitrator's decision. The firing of Rosen led the Fraternal Order of Police to take a no-confidence vote in Ginther. But Ginther today played down any rift between the officers and the city administration. There's always going to be natural tension between law enforcement and civilian oversight, he said. That's pretty sad that you have to say that. I mean, I'm sure that's the case, but there shouldn't be. There should not be tension between police and oversight because the police should do their fucking jobs without violating people's rights, like kicking them in the head when they're handcuffed. 
but that's out of Ohio. Continuing the theme of consequence-free policing in Oklahoma, killer cop Betty Shelby, the one who summarily executed unarmed black man Terrence Crutcher, uh, is now back on the streets as a full deputy. We had mentioned in a prior episode that she was on a provisional deputy status. Uh, well, now, about a year-ish after the uh, the jury acquitted her of killing him, she is back, this time as a full deputy with the Rogers County Sheriff's Office. So she's got full duties, got a gun and everything else. Just a matter of time before she kills herself another unarmed black man. In Pennsylvania, out of Westmoreland County, the uh, sheriff has been indicted for using his office to coerce gifts from businesses. From the story, it says, quote, prosecutors with the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office filed criminal charges in Greensburg against Westmoreland County Sheriff Jonathan Held, accusing him of ordering his staff to campaign for him while on duty. Held, a Republican from Hempfield, is in his second term as sheriff. He was charged with one felony count of conflict of interest for directing his staff to perform campaign duties and two misdemeanor theft counts for diverting county resources and employees for campaign functions. State investigators contend Held directed staff members to solicit gift cards and merchandise from gun shop owners starting in 2015 for his annual campaign fundraiser called I Outshot the Sheriff. Witnesses were not publicly identified in the investigation to protect them against retaliation by Held, according to court documents. There's a lot more there. We'll give you the link. Uh, Out of Tennessee and Campbell County, Tennessee Highway Patrol Officer Isaiah Lloyd is being sued for groping a single mother and then pulling her over a second time within three hours. From the story there, it says, quote, a Tennessee Highway Patrol trooper insisted he was following his agency's rule book when he put his fingers inside the shorts of a Campbell County mother and claimed he had no memory of his conversation with her in a second stop three hours later near her home. Lloyd, 25, is being sued for violating the rights of 29-year-old single mother Patricia Wilson when he twice stopped her within three hours. In the first stop, he put his fingers inside her shorts in a search a prosecutor has labeled legally suspect. In the second, Wilson says he told her, quote, we have to stop meeting like this. Lloyd's personnel file shows he has been disciplined three times since the Wilson traffic stops, with each drawing only an oral warning. This guy's trouble, but he's still on the force because that's what we do. You know, what kills me is that you have so many people who are unemployed who would probably make good police officers, and yet we still continue to pay these absolute fucksticks who just cannot do their job appropriately. Uh, as in Tennessee, out of Texas, in Tarrant County, the Texas Court of Appeals has vacated a conviction of a pedophile, Terry Lee Morris, because he was repeatedly electrocuted by the judge just because. From the story describing the uh, the background for the case, the paper says, quote, In Tarrant County, Texas, defendants are sometimes strapped with a stun belt around their legs. The devices are used to deliver a shock in the event the person gets violent or attempts to escape. But in the case of Terry Lee Morris, the device was used as punishment for refusing to answer a judge's questions properly during his 2016 trial on charges of soliciting sexual performance from a 15-year-old girl. In fact, the judge shocked Morris three times, sending thousands of volts coursing through his body. It scared Morris so much that he never returned for the remainder of his trial and almost all of his sentencing hearing. The action stunned the Texas 8th Court of Appeals in El Paso, too. It has now thrown out Morris's conviction on the grounds that the shocks ordered by State District Judge George Gallagher and Morris's subsequent removal from the courtroom violated his constitutional rights. Since he was too scared to come back, the court held that the shocks effectively barred him from attending his own trial in violation of the Constitution's Sixth Amendment, which guarantees a defendant's right to be present and confront witnesses during a trial. I'd argue it also hit his uh, right to counsel because if you're not coming into the courtroom, you can't talk with your lawyer. So we'll give you a link both to the story and to the court opinion in that one. Uh, out of Utah, this is not really a criminal justice story, but the Utah Bar Association emailed a picture of tits to every single lawyer in the state. Uh, from above the law, they write, quote, the Utah State Bar sent out a reminder for its spring convention. The subject line said, 2018 spring convention, walk-ins welcome, learn how, exclamation point. The body contained a banner for the Bar Association, a picture for the spring convention, March 8 through 10, and a naked woman showed only between the neck and belly button. 
I don't know how that happened, but fun times in Utah. Uh, in Virginia, in Charlottesville, Officer Chris Seymour has been acquitted of sodomizing a woman twice, more consequence-free policing. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, after more than four hours of deliberation, a jury has acquitted former Charlottesville police officer Christopher Seymour of two charges of sodomy. Seymour is accused of forcing Ronna Gary to perform oral sex on two separate occasions on November 18th, 2016. So the, the gist of this case is that there was a hit and run. A male followed the people that actually did the hit and run and the officer was interviewing that guy and this Gary woman was present. So he talks to her and he claims that she was flirting with him and he just had to go fuck her. That just ended up being the gist of his defense. He's interviewed by the uh, internal affairs folks. And the story says, quote, in the interview, Seymour said he met with Gary and Rye Burgum, the man who followed a vehicle involved in a hit and run. Seymour said Gary seemed to be flirting with him before she decided to go back inside her apartment. After speaking with Burgum, Seymour said he went to Gary's home to ask her some more questions about the car incident. He said again that she was acting flirtatious and was, quote, coming on to him pretty hard. After a short conversation with her, Seymour said Gary insinuated that she wanted to have sex with him and pulled her shirt up to show him she wasn't wearing a wire. She had previously told him she sometimes worked as an informant for the Area Drug Enforcement Task Force, helping police identify fugitives and drug dealers. Now, here's the money quote. Next thing he knew, Seymour said, Gary was performing oral sex on him. Next thing he knew. Look, I don't know if any of you who are guys listening have ever had fellatio before, but there is no next thing he knew, all right? If you're in a uniform, you got a belt to take off, you got a zipper to pull down, you got pants down, something. Like, there has to be some actual work of removing clothing and whipping something out before a woman puts her lips around it. You know what I mean? So the story goes on. Long story short, this guy lied his ass off, and it was documented. And in the internal affairs interview, he admits that he did not, should not have done this, and then enjoyed it so much, he went back a second time the same day. Whereas the woman is like, look, I was trying to get rid of this guy, and I thought that I was going to get arrested or to get in trouble if I didn't suck his dick. Um, but anyhow, a jury basically has said, it's cool. You can go ahead and get blowjobs on the job in Charlottesville. No big deal. Uh, out of Washington State. So th this is a weird story. It's not really criminal justice related. It's relating to homelessness. But the New York Times has a piece on tent cities, which apparently are a common thing in Seattle. And a homeless camp in particular that was deliberately set up on Seattle Pacific University's campus. And it basically discusses, one, it discusses the intense problem with homelessness in Seattle and other, I'm not going to say liberal cities, but other liberal cities, because you have a lot of uh, progressives that don't want to have development taking place. They put in very restrictive uh, ordinances on what can be built where. So it's basic economics. You know, if you don't have... Uh, more supply of housing, but at the same time, your demand is growing because people move to the area. That leads to price inflation, housing costs go up, more people can't afford housing. So there's a really bad homeless problem in Seattle. That's the gist of it. But they talk about how that has panned out. Basically, Seattle's had this multi-decade experience where they're trying to work on addressing the problem, but because they don't have a boatload of money to just give houses to people and they don't have a boatload of jobs to enable these people to work so they can get housing on their own, they've basically formalized this tent city concept. So the story talks, for example, about the tent city on the SPU campus where they actually have a check-in desk where you have to check in with reception before you can go visit a particular tent. And I don't know. I mean, I'm torn on this because on the one hand, it's interesting. You know, it's better than being totally destitute, just kind of roaming around. But on the other hand, it's really like an admission, like we can't solve the problem. Like there's no way to actually resolve this that we're just going to go ahead and formally create these tent cities as an actual thing. It's, it's an interesting story. So we're going to give you the link. Uh, but that is the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery this week. Uh, every now and again, we do cover stories in other countries. Out of Canada, we have in Toronto, uh, three cops are under investigation for gang raping a woman on the job. Uh, basically, three officers were acquitted 
of the sexual assault crimes back last year, and they have now been served with a separate notice that they're being investigated under what is called the Police Services Act. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Last August, Constables Lesney Niznik, Samir Kara, and Joshua Cabero were found not guilty of the January 17, 2005 incident involving a 36-year-old woman at the Toronto Weston Harbor Castle Hotel after all four of them went on a bar hopping spree that culminated at a strip club. None of the officers have been charged under the Police Act yet, but they are supposed to be interviewed by the end of the month. Some potential charges they might face include having sex, with consent or without, with a civilian member occupying a lesser position, encouraging others to have sex with someone of a lesser post, attending workplace functions where they received free booze or food, and failing to protect the safety of a civilian subordinate. Apparently this lady was like a parking enforcement officer or something to that effect. Uh, so crazy stuff out of Toronto. And then in the United Kingdom, uh, the UK Mirror has a pretty lengthy expose on child trafficking uh, from their story. It says, quote, up to a thousand children could have suffered in Britain's worst known abuse scandal, where sex gangs targeted girls as young as 11. The rape hell of vulnerable young... Let me pause. So the UK has hilarious tabloid papers that do decent investigative work, but their writing style is just so over the top compared to what I'm accustomed to reading. Uh, the rape hell of vulnerable young girls in one town, Telford, went on for a shocking 40 years. The Mirror's 18-month investigation reveals abuse on unprecedented levels. We found girls as young as 11 have been lured from their families to be drugged, beaten, and raped in an epidemic that is still ongoing, say the victims. Three people were murdered. Two others died in tragedies linked to the scandal. Social workers knew of abuse in the 1990s, but police took a decade before they launched a probe. Council staff viewed abused and trafficked children as prostitutes instead of victims. Authorities failed to keep details of abusers from Asian communities for fear of racism. Police failed to investigate a recent case five separate times before a member of parliament intervened. One victim said cops tried to stop her, finding out why her abusers had not been prosecuted because they feared she would talk to the press. Uh, there's a lot more in that story. It's very disturbing. It's really crazy. And that's, uh, that's the United Kingdom. So, folks, that is it for the criminal justice news. As I mentioned, we do not have a Law 140 this week because I didn't want Mike to have an aneurysm. We will have one next week. We've got one that's an overview on federalism and another one that's going to be on Oregon law about not discriminating against people based on age when you're doing uh, gun sales. Um, so I don't know when those are going to come out. I would like to do a bonus episode with at least one of those and some of the criminal justice stories that we cut out of this episode sometime this week. But as we learned last week, that me trying to do bonus episodes doesn't always work because sometimes law office stuff intervenes. So one way or the other, you will get these eventually. They're either going to be next Monday or they're going to be sometime midweek. We'll see. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, please tweet us why you happen to be a Fiscamall listener. You can tweet either the Fiscamall account, that's at Fiscamall, or my account at Greg, G-R-E-G underscore Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E. We will be retweeting those throughout the week. So make sure to tweet us, let us know why you listen. And as always, thank you for listening. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a fantastic week ahead, and I will talk to you next Monday.